our political engagement as Christians into the whole story of redemption the Bible uh, tells. And so we began last week at the very beginning with the creation of humanity. And we saw that humans are by design created with the purpose to image God. And that involves uh, a, a uh, representation of God as king. In other words, we as human beings are to rule on the earth because God is ruler. We are authorized by him. Uh, he has deputized us with his authority, and we use that to rightly uh, represent his reign. Okay? And so we saw that effectively the way that works is through <coughs> cultivation and flourishing, not just of humanity, but of all that God has created. Um, and so the problem for us is, although that's where the story begins, it's not where the story stays. And so what we need to do is move from creation into the next major aspect of the story the Bible tells of the world as we know it as Christians, uh, which we often call the fall. Because effectively what happens is Adam and Eve, the first created humans, our first parents, um, are given this great commission but then they're tempted towards an alternative, not to rule for God, but to rule for themselves. And kind of surprisingly, almost ironically, uh, it actually ends up being subservience to another ruler altogether. They think what they're being offered is autonomy, but what they're actually offered is subjugation. And so they listen to the voice of the serpent, they disobey the commandment they've given, um, and then we have a problem. Suddenly there's this disparity between God's purposes in the world and human destiny and the nature of human beings itself. Okay. And so where we're going to pick up this morning is a little bit further in the story, not too far, Genesis chapter 9, uh, to talk about specifically the nature of government. As we saw last week, the commission of ruling was one that was given equally to all humanity and was focused primarily on cultivation. It doesn't reference ruling or reigning with justice, for example, because justice was innate, inherent, or depending on how you're using the word, maybe even unnecessary for a world without sin, for a world without human autonomy that would push and want to build its own kingdom. Okay, for a world without um, competition, these types of things. But that's not where the story stays. So if you have a Bible this morning, open it up right to Genesis chapter 9. If you didn't bring a Bible, you can find one in front of you, um, in the back of the pews. Genesis is the first book of the Bible, and you're just looking for chapter 9, just a few pages in Although this morning we're very much still in the beginning of the
the book of Genesis or the beginning of the Bible as a whole, we're very much picking up in the end of a particular story, the story of the flood of Noah and the ark and those things, okay? So at this point, the flood has subsided, Noah has gotten off the ark, and what we find here is a conversation that God has with Noah as he makes with him a covenant, okay? Uh, as he makes with him some promises and as he recommissions Noah as, to some degree, the new Adam. Okay. Now, read with me, beginning here in Genesis chapter 9. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heaven and upon everything that creeps on the ground and all of the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you and as I gave you the green plants, I gave you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is the blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood shall be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply, team on the earth and multiply in it. Let's pray. Father, as we lay another cornerstone in our foundation of understanding the role of government and politics and our role as Christians within it, I pray, Lord, that you would guide us with wisdom this morning, and as we look at your word, Lord, we would come to, um, come to have the right and proper view of these things. We pray for your help in that this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. One of the advantage, uh, one of the advantages to skipping chapters three through eight, as we've done, and jumping right from Genesis one to Genesis nine, is we can see that there's a tremendous continuity between the two. In fact, all scholars agree that the covenant that's laid out in Genesis nine is rooted in what we read about last week. And so that continuity is very evident. In fact, notice again in verse 1, it begins with God blessing Noah and his children, humanity, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Does that sound familiar? If you were with us last week or you're familiar with Genesis 1, it absolutely does. That is the commission that God gave humanity. In fact, it's so important to this short passage in Genesis chapter 9 it doesn't just begin God's covenant here, but it ends it as well. Look at verse 7. And you be fruitful and multiply, team on the earth and multiply in it. As I mentioned, Noah functions as somewhat of a second Adam. Okay? To the degree that just as Adam is placed in a garden and then sins, so also the same with Noah. He builds this vineyard and then gets drunk in his tent, right? There's a parallel there. God's commissioning here is be fruitful and multiply. And also notice that in verse 6, as it talks about the shedding of blood and the need for restitution, it gives precedent or it gives foundation 
to the importance of human life in the same language of Genesis 1. It says, therefore, God made man in his own image. We talked last week about how that gives an innate and inherent dignity to all human life. But here we have the image of God and be fruitful and multiply, and they are echoed in this passage. There's continuity here. God is moving still towards the same end, and he's giving again the same commission here that he gave to Adam. But obviously there's a tremendous discontinuity as well. For example, and this is a smaller piece, but just to get us rolling, in Genesis 1, God gives to humankind of all the plants to eat for their enjoyment. But here it adds the eating of animals. Okay? There's a continuity there, but something has changed. Right? The dominion that, that was to be given to uh, human beings over animal life has somehow transitioned and now involves the eating of animals. In the same way, and probably most central, is the reality of murder and the consequence, the need for consequence of these things. In fact, remember that that's the first thing that happens after the garden. Adam and Eve sin by eating of the fruit. They're pushed out of the garden. They have two sons, Cain and Abel, and Cain rises up and he kills his brother Abel. What went wrong in the garden manifests in someone who was never in the garden, right? What went wrong with Adam and Eve went wrong with humanity collectively, and it shows itself in how human beings treat another person. Violence begins in the Bible in Genesis chapter 4, when Cain kills his own brother Abel. But it doesn't end there. We see more of these things as humanity begins to populate the earth, and that actually leads to the story we're reading this morning. Why does God send a worldwide flood? He does it as an act of judgment, and listen to this language out of Genesis chapter 6. It says in Genesis 6:11, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. Now, that word corruption is really important because what does it imply? That something has changed, right? It's not that there was evil and there was good. It's that there was good and now the good has gone bad, right? That's what we mean when we talk about corruption, okay? So God creates the world. It's all good, but now there's something in the world, a corrupting force, and it has done just that so that the earth was corrupt in God's sight. And then notice his explanatory next sentence, and the earth was filled with violence. And so now humanity as a whole is full of Cain and Abel stories. And not just at the individual family level, but at this point as tribe against tribe and nation against nation, power against power, war, and all of these things are stirring up. And the flood is a direct response to this, a judgment that God brings upon this reality. Now, God selects Noah and his family and graciously spares them from this worldwide judgment, which means as Noah steps off the boat, again, he steps off as Adam Mark II. 
the first parents of a new world, one that we would ask, is it cleansed? Is it saved? Is it spared? But we all live in a post-Noah world, in a post-flood world, so you already know the answer is no. Sin exists in a post-flood world because sin gets on the boat with Noah, right? In fact, God knows that as well. Notice one other thing. Listen to this language in Genesis 6. It says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, I can't think offhand of another verse in the Bible that has so many modifiers in it. Every intent of the thoughts of man's heart was always evil continuously. Okay? It is a damning criticism of humanity and notice violence is not seen as something that comes because of circumstances but something that stems from the heart something that Jesus repeats as well he says it's hatred in the heart and anger in the heart that leads to violence in the world and the heart is the problem the heart is the issue but notice this is the problem that God is responding to in the flood but I want you to notice back in Genesis 9 Okay. specifically actually right before 9 in chapter 8 verse 21 when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma of a sacrifice that uh, Noah had made the Lord said in his heart I will never again curse the ground because of man for the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth so notice he promises here not to bring a worldwide destruction like the flood again but it's not because now the intentions of man's heart are okay it's still the intention of man's heart is evil. Okay? The problem still exists, but at this point in the story, God changes something. He introduces something new. And to see what it is, there's one last piece I want to uh, add here, and for it, I want to look at verse 11 of Genesis 9. Speaking to Noah here, he says, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. Okay, just pause there and notice like God's commissioning of humanity for Adam and Eve affects us, so does this one. Right? The words that Noah is told here from God are not just for him, but for his children and his children's children, to all generations, to all people. Verse 13, notice what it says. I've set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood and destroy the flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And so here, the sign of this promise, this relational beginning, this recommissioning of humanity uh, is the rainbow, right? But we need to understand that the language here used for rainbow is not a Hebrew equivalent for our word rainbow. It's just the basic word for a bow and not the one you would tie on a toddler's head. 
okay? It's a military bow, which is the shape of a rainbow, right? The idea here is that God is laying down his weapon, his bow. When we connect that with the commissioning he gives to humanity, we start to understand what all is going on here, and it's what we're looking for this morning. And so please, one last time with me, go back to verse 5. And for your lifeblood, I will require it from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Okay, so here's the tension of what's going on here. God allows humanity to populate the earth and it cultivates violence, injustice, oppression, and bloodshed. Here, God promises to lay down the right and proper consequences of that in his judgment and instead delegates that judgment to us as human beings. Okay. Do you see that? In fact, notice here that the basis of this is, again, that language, I will require a reckoning. Okay. Now, depending on where you're at this morning, you might read that as a good thing or a bad thing. As we talked about last week, we have a natural and modern proclivity against all sorts of issues that come up when we talk about politics. Power, authority, okay. and now the reality of violence. Clearly here, this is talking specifically about what we would call capital punishment, a life for a life. But we need to recognize that effectively God delegates this authority to humanity for two reasons. Okay, one, so that there is any humanity at all. Okay. Because if violence is allowed to cultivate and grow, it has a tendency to destroy human life. I don't think that's surprising. That's the nature of the problem here. But two, if God takes it into, our, into his own hands effectively, because sin is an issue of the heart, there's blood on all of our hands. And so what God sets up here is effectively government. The reality of government. Both its necessity in human life, as well as its authorization to do what needs to be done. It is a delegation of God's authority. Now, this fits in the confines of what we've already seen. Human beings have a calling. They have a purpose. They have a destiny to be fruitful and multiply and therefore rightly image God and his rule. But now there's a complication on the table. The nature of sin and the infighting of humanity, the killing of one another that, harp, uh, that uh, dampens or hinders that possibility. And so God sets up an expectation that human beings will self-regulate. Now there's one last little thread I want to tie in here. It's not very visible in the English, but when it says, and for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning from every beast I'll require it, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of a man. That word there for fellow man is not just another human, it's brother. 
From his brother I will require a reckoning. Now back when we experienced the first murder in the Bible, it's a murder between brothers. As Cain kills his brother Abel. And do you remember God in the story comes to Cain and he says, Where is your brother Abel? And famously Cain responds, Am I my brother's keeper? Is he my responsibility? Okay. Do you see how this is echoing the language of that story? The answer is yes. In fact, the answer that God gives Cain is yes. He says, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the field. Okay. So, this is the basis of government. And I want to look at two things this morning. First, what's not said. Here we find no commissioning of a particular type of government. Right? It doesn't say whoever sheds man's blood, a king shall take care of that. It doesn't say a democratic republic shall take care of that. It doesn't say the rightly appointed officials. It doesn't mention government in the way we think about it as all. It sees it as being society's responsibility. Human beings as a whole will be held accountable for rightly dealing with violence in human society. Okay. This is something we need to wrap our head around. Although the Bible records many different types of governing authorities in their existence, even in God's people Israel, it doesn't elevate one and say, this is the right and proper model for government. And as people who have grown up in a democratic republic and as people who have grown up as a nation who believes in cultivating that type of democracy worldwide, that can be a head-scratcher for us. We're so thoroughly built on the foundation of Locke and on Hobbes and on J.S. Mills and these types of people, we are only comfortable with democracy. In fact, sometimes we read the Bible and it's full of kings and the injustice of kings is so present, we're like, man, what is going on here? But again, here, and as we'll see a little bit in Romans 13, God doesn't specify the nature of government. And although we believe democracy is a uniquely good form of government, it's not a workable form for all peoples in all times and all places. Imagine you had an island that was uh, established by pirates. Democracy may not be the best bet for where things are at. In fact, have we not learned in our own American busybodiness the difficulty of just slapping a democracy on a foreign people in different places. Okay. The issue here is not how that government is organized, but what its purpose is. And this is consistent whether we're talking about tribal leadership and judges, or the kings uh, of Israel and the kings of the nations, or the emperor of Rome. Every government model we find is gauged by their purpose. And here we see what the purpose is. And simply put, the purpose is justice. Because of the reality of sin, because of the reality of our ability to mistreat one another, because of the significance of the power that God has given all human beings to act in the world around it, God requires of human society justice. And he authorizes humans to do so. Now, 
sometimes when we think about these things, because we value life so much, we lose the logic here and we go, but doesn't capital punishment, for example, doesn't just taking the life of a life taker just make more death? Doesn't it just dishonor more image of God? Now, one of the reasons we come to that conclusion is actually because our thinking of punishment in the modern world is based on a utilitarian, on a practical standing, okay? And there's really two ways we talk about punishment in our society. One is as a deterrent. We punish bad behavior to, to make it less attractive to people who might be tempted towards it, okay? In fact, if you look at that and you look at capital punishment as a whole, those states that have it or those countries that have it versus those that don't, it doesn't seem to be a very strong deterrent. And so people go, well, we shouldn't go about capital punishment at all. The other way that we go is we see punishment as being reforming. Okay. Think of our modern English word for a prison, a penitentiary. A penitentiary is a place where somebody who is penitent for their crimes can reform and become a better person. But you can't reform the dead, can you? And so again, capital punishment doesn't bring about change in a person, it ends their life. But those are both utilitarian and they're both separate from what's laid out here. And this is the problem of modern philosophies that view punishment through that lens. Okay? The one life that is not valued when we think in those terms is the life that was lost. And that's the one that God holds an accounting for here. The desecration of his image in another human being is so significant, it can't go unaccounted for. Now, to be clear, as we read, even in God's people Israel, as you keep reading the story, there's a difference here between accidental killings and murder. There's a difference between extenuating circumstances and what we would call murder in cold blood. When Israel legislates these things, there's a whole lot of safeguards and importance in these things. The question is not, should we be swift to take lives? The question is, is there ever a reason? Is there ever a possibility? The Bible promotes a strong view of mercy, even in the Old Testament. But what about for those who aren't interested? What about for those who show no remorse? But more importantly, the first question we have to ask in government, in judgment, and, and recognize, although we're talking at the top thing, it is a significant thing to be authorized to take another human life. If God has created us all in our image and he does this, that's the extreme version of this, but it implies the whole system of justice. You know, a phrase that's built on this phrase right here that comes up in the book of Exodus is an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, which is another thing that makes us uncomfortable. But notice what it says about judgment. It says that it should be proportionate. Okay. In fact, in the ancient world, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is a tremendous limitation on judgment that could often be capricious, cruel and unusual, and totally out of bounds. In fact, one of the things that leads to the most violence in the world is the unjust escalation of punishment, right? On the battlefield, you killed my son, so I'm gonna kill your whole family. You killed my family, so I'm gonna wipe out your tribe, right? It's that escalation. But there's an expectation here of right and proper judgment. That is the basis 
of government. God doesn't care necessarily how it's constituted, uh, constituted, how it's put together. What he cares about is justice being done. And you just have to read the prophets to see how focal point this is for God. When he criticizes Israel's kings, when he criticizes the nations, what does he hold them accountable for? Improper treatment of those who bear his image. Injustice. Now there's another side to this as well. This judgment by condemning an act also affirms a value. Like I said, that's sometimes missing from our modern thing. In other words, when we make a judgment, we, just, we don't just determine guilty, we also determine innocent. We don't just determine evil, we also determine good. We don't just, uh, you know, decry murder, we also value human life. And so we can recognize here that government has both of those purposes. And it's no surprise that when Peter talks about government in 1 Peter chapter 2, which we'll return to in a few weeks... That's what he says the purpose of government is. To judge the evil and to affirm what is good. Now, what we need to recognize this morning is that this foundation is inherently theological in nature. What is the foundation of For thou shall not murder in the Ten Commandments. Because human beings were created in the image of God. They were made by God and therefore are not your property. And they were made for God as his representatives. And so what you do to them, as we saw last week, you do unto the Lord. And so there is an inherently theological foundation. And again, like we saw last week, it's important to keep that in mind or we end up having a groundless preference for particular types of behaviors versus another. We end up losing the connection here. Now, the second thing I want you to notice is here God authorizes government. He doesn't describe what type of it is, but we we can say with confidence here that if you were a policeman or a judge, or a governor, or a president, or what have you, that you fit in the confines of what God describes and prescribes right here. You become a delegate of God's desire to see justice done on the earth, which, of course, makes those things a tremendously high calling. And, of course, no matter how you constituate these things, whoever it is who makes the decision, who makes the judgments, whether it's done by trial and a council of your peers or done by a judge or a single ruler, however it's put together, it also makes those powers accountable because they operate here as God's representatives. The authority that God gives human beings here is not ultimate and it's not autonomous. It is, again, as all authority and all power, like we saw last week, representative of God's authority and power, and it either reflects it or not. Which leads us to a really interesting thing. If you've been a Christian for a long time, if you've ever looked into the Christian relationship with politics, because the New Testament affirms so many times that we are to be subject to our rulers, the question of, is it ever right to pursue a change in those power structures? Is it ever right for a revolution, right, becomes really important. But I want you to notice, at the very least, this morning, 
that there is a boomerang factor in the reality that's talking about here. When it says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood shall be shed, does that apply merely to subjects or also to kings? Does that apply merely to those who are under authority or those who are in authority? Again, God lays out a societal responsibility for justice here. Now, that probably creates more questions than it does answers this morning, but it's important to keep that in mind or we end up falling into places where we have no place to criticize those in power and where patriotism becomes toxic and destructive because we begin to justify those in power because they are in power instead of holding them accountable because they are in power. And so what we see here is very basic and very small, but it is the entire foundation of what we call government or judgment or the call we have to justice, which again is societal. It is society-wide. It is put on all people to be responsible for their brothers and sisters. Okay. Now... The story doesn't end here, it moves forward, and before I walk you through that story, which we're going to do very quickly, I actually want to move closer to the end of the story, and I want to turn to Romans 13. Okay. And what I want you to see this morning is that when Paul addresses these things, he addresses it with the same understanding. You know, Genesis is written thousands of years before the coming of Jesus. Paul's letter to the Romans is written a few decades after the life of Jesus. Um, and so there's, there's probably 4,000 plus years between the two. And there's also a really significant difference here, okay? This is the story that we need to tell, and it will be the focus of next week's sermon. But just as we saw a transition between Genesis 1 and Genesis 9, so also there's a significant transition between Genesis 9 and Romans 13. First, we have the creation of the nation of Israel, but that culminates in Jesus Christ who comes and identifies himself as the king of the Jews. In fact, as the Lord of the earth. Jesus is Lord, becomes the confession. And so Christ's coming changes this whole dynamic. More on that next week, but nonetheless, even with that amazing, significant event, look here at Romans chapter 13. Here it says in verse 1, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. Ah, oh, he went there. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are, again, servants of God, attending to this very thing. 
Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Okay, a couple of really quick things before we dig in here. First, this passage is so sudden, so surprising, that people for hundreds of years have tried to remove it just by saying somebody else added this. This is not Paul's original words. Why in the world does he talk about government here? Uh, But there's actually a direct connection between what precedes this and what follows. And that connection is through contrast. Okay, I'll show you this in two ways. What Paul talks about in chapter 12 is about our behavior within the church. What Paul talks about after chapter 13 verse 8 is our behavior as Christians. And in both of them, he contrasts government with us. So for example, go back to chapter 12 and look at verse 17. Speaking to us as Christians, he says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Is, if possible, as far as depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Do you see what he says there? He says, vengeance is not for us as Christians. Leave it to the wrath of God. But he uses the same two words, vengeance and wrath, to speak of government. Vengeance is for government because they represent God's wrath. Do you see that contrast? That'll be very significant in the weeks to come. But whatever it means to be the church, whatever it means to worship Jesus as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, does not end the significance of government or their call to do justice. Okay, now the second thing Paul talks about there in chapter 13 is taxes. And he says, pay taxes to who taxes are due. In fact, he says, give them everything you owe them. Honor, taxes, respect. And then notice what he says in verse 8, speaking of our behavior in general. Owe no one anything except love each other, for the one who loves another has filled the law. Do you see the contrast there? You were obligated to government, but with one another, don't think in terms of obligation except your obligation to love one another. It's a contrast again. Okay. In fact, Paul is clearly building on Jesus' words when he's given a coin of Caesar's and says, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and give to God the things that are God. There's a distinction there. Now, we're going to deal with all of that in the weeks to come. But all I want you to see is that this commission that begins in Genesis 9 continues as long as human society does on the earth. The call to justice, the goodness of government... The accountability that government has to its people and the accountability people have to one another, all of that continues. But the other thing I want to point out is in the same way we saw in Genesis 9, here Paul doesn't describe a particular form of authority, despite the fact that he's writing to who? The Romans. They live in the capital city of the empire of Rome, and and nevertheless, notice what he says in verse 1, Let every uh, person be subject to the governing authorities. Could he be more generic? He doesn't say the emperor, although Peter doesn't have any problem saying honor the emperor in 1 Peter chapter 2. 
but he says, every person be subject to whatever authorities are in place. And then he says here, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Okay. Again, looking back on this commissioning of society's necessity to maintain justice. Now, already, especially if we keep reading, because he says, you don't have to be afraid of government if you do the right thing. We go, Paul, have you ever heard of Jesus? Who was it who put Jesus to death? Rulers unjustly. The Jewish Sanhedrin, the leaders who called for his death. King Herod, who called for his death. Pilate, who called for his death. And Paul knows this firsthand. Has he ever been wrongly beaten by authorities? Thrown in prison? You know, the emperor who's on the throne when Paul is writing this is Caesar Nero, and at the end of Paul's life, it will be ended because Caesar decapitated him. Okay. So those things exist, but here he's not talking about a particular government and affirming it as being God's government. In fact, most importantly here, three times in this passage, he refers to government as God's servant. Now, Roman emperors, Roman procurates, Roman governors, they would have been resistant to that. Some Jewish subject of ours, reducing the Roman Empire to just being a servant of their God. There is a consistent call in the Bible to see authority as a service. In fact, notice how he puts it. Um, where's the one I want? Verse 4, this authority, it says, he is God's servant for your good. So they're serving under God for the sake of society. And like we talked about last week with power, power is gauged by how it empowers other people involved. Okay? The most just society is the one where the most people collectively flourish. Because then they are given the freedom to do what they were called to do, to rightly image God, to be fruitful and multiply, to cultivate on their own. All of those things are still built into this understanding. Okay. And again, that is so good. Because if governments are not the servants of God, then we have an accountability problem. And here is where government always goes wrong. Not when it forget, or not when it operates as God's servant, accountable to bring about justice, but when it operates as God itself. When it forgets about God, when it neglects these things. As much as religion has led to violence, atheism is still winning by a huge headcount just under the reins of Pol Pot and Lenin alone. Why? Because if God is the opiate of the people and does not exist, then who am I accountable to? Okay. Now, the point is here that as Christians, we should both believe in the significance of government and, as we'll see in weeks to come, hold them accountable to their purpose. Now, remember, government in the ancient world was a pretty limited thing. This judging factor of being the final authority, determining innocent and guilty was the major part of it. Building roads might be something that happened. 
But there was no police force in the Roman Empire. There was no utilities in the Roman Empire. There were aqueducts for their primary cities. There were these things. But we've built so much on this foundation. Right? There was no health care in Rome. We need to remember two things. One, that government's primary role is this call for properly judging in God's place justly. And two, that society's call to broader human flourishing is for all of us, and that includes government, so it's okay if government is part of that solution. But, but sometimes those things are intention. But, sometimes government is not the best way for humans to flourish. And we need to recognize in a country that has been so overly politicized, we tend to assume political answers to every question. That's not how Paul sees government. And to some degree, government does their job best when they're left to do their job and we find other ways to do our jobs. Okay? But let me just make one last note and then I want to walk you through one last piece. Okay? One last note just to recognize here is now we've gotten far enough that we can actually talk about politics as a concept in two different ways. Okay? There's the narrow reality of politics that involves governing. Those in authority, political solutions, voting, uh, and laws, and these types of things. And then there's the broader reality of politics, which means if we're going to work together as a community, we're going to organize it in some way. We're going to set some sort of values or goals and pursue them in some way. Both of them coexist, and this is the important thing, Government exists, little politics exists for, this, for the value of big politics. Okay. Government exists to maintain justice so that good culture can be created, so that these things... In fact, one specific reason the Bible gives why Christians should care about uh, government, because we're not just called to sub be, in subject, be subject to our leaders, we're also called to pray for them, which is a whole other thing, right? You can be a grumbling and spiteful servant of a, of a master... But praying for them is something different. And Paul tells us in 1 Timothy, the reason is so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives, which is usually as far as we get. And then he says this, for God desires all to know him. In other words, when government does its job right, the church has the freedom to do its job, to proclaim Jesus, to invite people to follow him. Okay? And so even God's most specific plan. His most significant aspect of human flourishing, which is to reconnect humanity with himself. Government is gauged by whether they make room for it. Not if they accomplish it. As we'll see, this doesn't say that we should use the sword to convert people as if that's even possible. But when government maintains justice, it creates the space, the room for flourishing. Now, one last thing. The story that we're telling doesn't have all the pieces, yes. Yes, we were created and empowered and authorized to be fruitful and multiply and have dominion. Yes, we have fallen, and because of this sin nature, that often leads to violence, injustice, and oppression, and so God has created government to do that. But the story doesn't end there. In fact, what happens right after, right after God gives Noah the covenant? The first thing we see a group of people coming together to do 
is to build the Tower of Babel. In opposition to God who says, spread out on the earth, they say, let's stay put. They say, let us make a name for ourselves instead of making a name for God. And in contrast to this one group of people, the polis, the city, we have Abraham. And God says, I'm going to make you a name, Abraham. In fact, he takes the same language of Genesis 1 and Genesis 9, and he says, I'm going to make you fruitful and multiply. Do you see the difference there? He doesn't come to Abraham and start over and say, be fruitful and multiply. He says, I'm going to make it happen. But don't be surprised that Abraham turns into a family, and that family turns into tribes, and that tribes turns into a nation. But even that nation has a significant problem, right? It's got the same sin issue in its midst. It struggles to do right. It's called to injustice. Of the 30-some kings that reign over Israel, only five are given the label as being good kings. And so we get to a place in the Gospels when Jesus shows up, and it is these governments, his own people Israel, under their leadership, and the nations of the world represented in the Roman Empire, who crucify him and put him to death. But it is also that act of unjust capital punishment by the powers that be that are supposed to be representing God that God uses to do something entirely new. What we find in the Bible is not God's overthrowing of government, but his instituting of it and then his coming in the human flesh to actually accomplish what we cannot. And so it's no surprising that the messianic promises that Jesus identified with himself have to do with justice, the establishing of justice on the earth, the freeing of the captive, the restoration of those who have been enslaved, the setting right of those things that have gone wrong. And so the question for us as Christians, and this is what we'll spend the next two weeks talking about, is how does that reality that we serve the king shape how we treat other kings right now? And all I want to say this morning, and this is where I'll conclude, just based on what we've already seen, just going from Genesis 9 to Romans 13, we can say this with confidence, okay? One, God has not made us simply servants of whatever government we find ourselves under. Two, God has not called us to overthrow said powers. Instead, he's called us to serve a different king entirely. Okay. And so we have to keep, just that little balance will be amazingly helpful to you. We have to keep that in mind. It doesn't remove the responsibility we have as human beings in the society we find ourselves but if you spend your whole life working for justice in the world as it is, you've forgotten the gospel itself, which is that the problem with humanity has gone so wrong that we will never find it without the divine help of God. And he doesn't give it by redeeming this government, but by creating an entirely new one. Let's pray. Father, I know that that's a lot to chew on this morning, a lot for us to consider. And again, it's not enough. It's not fully orbed enough. The foundation isn't finished enough for us to build our own political engagement upon. 
But I pray, Lord, that this morning you would help us to rejoice again in your goodness. Not only do you desire justice so much that you establish government, but despite the failures and awful realities of government along the way, you were simultaneously working to do what we could not do, to bring about what we could not bring about. That's why we as Christians don't pray, God, help me build your kingdom, but your kingdom come. And that leaves us in a place of being a witness to your kingdom and a responsible citizen of our own. I pray that you teach us how to manage and balance that. And right now, Lord, I pray very simply that for the places that are just outright beyond the pale, for the attitudes we have that reflect more our culture than anything else, which is rebellious, which is anti-authority, which is uh, towards human autonomy, I, I just pray that you would uproot those things and that you'd give us a new vision. And as we worship you now, Lord, I pray that our worship would be full-throated and with full hearts as well. That we would know that you are good and righteous and just. And on top of that, you are gracious and merciful. Thank you that you hung up your bow. And you didn't just do that, Lord. You didn't just delay judgment. But you also came as a man, took that judgment on yourself, and freely offered us not just innocence, but justification. Our crimes paid for in full so that we can have the freedom of a relationship with you and learn a new way, empowered by your spirit, of human flourishing. We pray that you'd help us with all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we respond this morning and we continue to worship, Feel free to come.